Welcome to Conversatio, the Belmont Abbey College podcast. This podcast aims to form and transform our community so that each of us can reflect God's image. I'm Dr. Joseph Wysocki, Dean of the Honors College and Interim Provost at Belmont Abbey College. I'm your host for today's episode, and today I'm joined by Andrea Lipinski, Vice President of Training and Consulting for the Searcy Institute, where she also serves as Head of Mentor and Apprenticeship Program, and Elizabeth Sullivan, Executive Director of the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education. We're excited to talk about the rise of classical education, but I'll let Andrea and Elizabeth introduce themselves before we start. Andrea? Thank you for having me today. I'm really glad to be here. Um, A little bit about myself. I currently live in the Pacific Northwest. If you haven't been there, I highly recommend you go on a trip. Um, I started into the world of education for the, on the behalf of my two children, and then continued. So once I learned that children become what they behold, I realized I'd better figure out what I'm doing. So I joined the Cersei apprenticeship for myself, and then went into private schools teaching, and was asked to come back by Cersei to help uh, assist with the program. So that's kind of been my journey here. And um, within Cersei, the uh, head mentor has been a really beautiful role to be a part of, to be asked to join. So it's been a joy for me. Thanks, Andrea. I also found my um, my way to my current role through my vocation as a mother. Uh, when my children were little, I, I had been a journalist previously. And when, when my children were young, I was distressed by the lack of inspiration and wonder in their education, um, despite sending them to some of the best Catholic schools that we could find. And in my journey, I realized that the foundation has been lost for the tradition that we're all trying to recover, just a deeply human education that engages the whole person and directs us to the wonder of creation and to know God. So I joined the, I, I was teaching um, middle school English literature writing and um, in upstate New York at a private Catholic or private school in the Catholic tradition and wound up discovering ICLE in the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education in its very nascent stage um, and joined to help promote this vision and this recovery of a deeply human education. And that was in 2010, I guess. And um, and now it's clear that this demand all over the country has been spreading, just a longing to return to to a, an education that feeds the soul. And so our, our work has exploded. Along the way, as part of my search, I too did the Searcy Institute. And fun fact here is that Andrea was my mentor. She was a year ahead of me and works on a mentorship program. So Andrea and I have, um, I've just been delighted to work with her in the past and to stay in touch with our friends at Searcy. Thanks so much, Andrea uh, and and Elizabeth. Um, I think we'll talk a little bit more about the work that we're engaging in together uh, as Belmont Abbey College launches its master's in classical and liberal education and uh, the partnership with both Cersei and ICLE. But first, I thought maybe we would talk a little bit about the movement itself, uh, the demand for the movement, what exactly it is. I think for our audiences here on the Conversatio podcast, um, some people have heard of this movement and, and are already steeped in it. Others might be hearing about it for the first time. Um, so maybe I'll start off with um, just a question that begins with the cliche, right? Like we have we have a cliche that is is thrown out all the time when we talk about classical and liberal education, and sort of delving into that to see exactly what it means. So we throw out uh, these three transcendentals. We say that uh, a classical education is an education that cares deeply about the true, the good, and the beautiful. And we all maybe sort of have a sense of what that means, but um, maybe we can explore each of those a little bit and talk about um, how the classical movement, the classical and liberal education movement understands those things and and specifically how it's trying to address those. I would imagine that any school today, even those who are not in this tradition that we're talking about, would say we, we care about the truth and we care about doing good, maybe not care so much about the beautiful or, or that always gets cut, the arts get cut. Um, but I think this movement has a very different understanding maybe of of the true and the good. So maybe let's start off with this idea of the true. What is it specifically about this type of education that um, helps to make young souls receptive to the truth or, or the types of um, 
learning that uh, helps them to pursue the truth better? How does it, how does the movement understand the true? So I'll turn it over to either of you. Maybe I'll jump in on this one. Sure. Um, I think it's important to look at the the context of the history of education. We we hearken back to the classical world because in some ways we have more in common with ancient pagans than we do with modern educators because they believed that truth exists, that it can be known, and that it can be communicated. And so the very structure of classical liberal education is ordered toward this pursuit of truth. How do we find these clues in creation, in the human person, that point us to something higher, something deeper, um, that, that resonates in the soul? And so tapping back into the idea, this very logocentric view, ironically, it's before the incarnation, and the ancient pagans are essentially looking for the logos, you know, the, the ordering principle of the universe, that is answered in the incarnation, that's answered in Christ. So Christian or Catholic classical liberal arts education knows that there's this ordering principle. We know that truth is a person. And so that casts a different light. It's the integration of faith and reason. And it turns out that learning is much more fun when you know that there's meaning there and you're on a hunt to find that. Thanks, Beth. I would add that the when you talk about all three transcendentals, that those are the things that feed the soul. And so the true, the good, and the beautiful uh, within Christian classical education, our aim is to nourish the soul for wisdom and virtues purpose, right? To grow those. How do you feed that? What part feeds that part of the soul? And that's the true, the good, and the beautiful, all three of them. I know you asked us to speak on truth, but I can't separate them and to, to identify their purpose is to actually feed the soul. Um, and how do we, how do we identify them? How do we perceive the true um, through the seven liberal arts? Those are the arts of truth perception that I, give us the ability to perceive it. And as Beth said, like it, it is knowable and truth is communicable. And, and those arts are what give us that tool to do it. Maybe I'll, I'll go a little deeper uh, in, in uh, responding to your answer, Andrea. So let, let's talk about those particular arts. Um, you know, one um, that I want to pick on here, because I think there's always this um, dichotomy, uh, perceived dichotomy out there between sort of modern education, classical education. Um, there's so much of an emphasis on STEM education uh, mm. out there in the world today uh, in terms of when we think of education policy and what ought to be promoted out there in the, in the general secular world. Um, the, the classical and liberal education talks about something called the quadrivium. And I know that Circe has done uh, courses that have touched on the quadrivium, that is arithmetic, geometry, uh, music, astronomy. And um, the ICLE has a specific uh, section dedicated in their course of studies to the quadrivium. So like, what's the difference, right? Like people often think, well, classical education, this is a bunch of people reading Plato and Homer and they can't do any kind of math, right? And clearly mm -hmm. this is not true. But so, so what is maybe the difference in the approach of the quadrivium versus modern understanding of STEM? Go ahead. We like to say that the quadrivium is really STEM on steroids. It's, <laughs> it's looking at the language of number, God's language of number in an ordered universe, that there's, there's patterns and there's a way of looking at things that, that grows to... Um, to unveil, unveil truth, whether it's the Fibonacci sequence in nature, whether it's the fact that um, the sounds that we hear that are ple pleasing to the ear, the music that is pleasing to the ear, you can trace those same ratios and those same patterns, for example, to the proportions of a Gothic cathedral. So also the, these things are the first place where we encounter truth. We know that two plus two is always four, whether we're in North Carolina or New Guinea right? So we encounter truth. And, and the idea that truth, there are some things that are immutable, unchangeable, that we can count on, that not everything is subject to our own interpretation. Um, but there's so much beauty in this, sort of seeing the world through this language of number and how it connects. Um, I feel like I was robbed in my mathematics education to understand, you know, it's a lot more than just the algorithms, right? That it's 
It's pointing to something mysterious and beautiful. For example, we can know that truth exists in, in a simple math equation, but also mathematics contains all kinds of mystery when we think of um, infinity or pi. Um, it's really endless. My wife went to Thomas Aquinas College and studied, you know, the quadrivium in depth there. And when I met her at Baylor, she was in a, a math program, graduate program. And yeah, I, I think I had the typical public school education in terms of math and got absolutely none of that. Um, and she would always talk to me about the, the beauty of geometric proofs and the beauty of mathematics. And I just went, I, I, I think I, I, I'm trusting that you're right, but I have I, I, I never got that. And I, at some point in my life, I will have the time to go back and teach Euclid, I hope. But um, yeah, Andrea, any, any, any other thoughts on, on that? Or? Well, I think a piece of what I heard in your question was the comparison of modern to uh, classical education's view of the maths, the number STEM, right? And so I will add to my piece of the story. Uh, I learned how to play the game. I was really good at modern education's game. I could show up in the teacher's classroom, figure out whatever he or she wanted me to hand back on a piece of paper, walk out the door and never think about it again. And I was praised for it, highly, right? But as you've said, Joe, what did I learn? What, what fed my soul in that? Nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've gone back now with my children and been able to play with Euclid. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's just a delight. Um, so the comparisons that are possible with looking at pondering number for the sake of number, not for the sake of getting the right answer on my piece of paper. I was great at plug and chug. Sure. Right. So, but Euclid isn't isn't that at all, and just arithmetic. The the we've played with number in the apprenticeship to where we'll put on the board uh, zero to nine across the top, zero to nine going down the left, and either add them or multiply them, and then look for patterns of how these numbers relate to one another. Mm -hmm. Right. Just to ponder for fun's sake. Um, and in our world of, for the renewal, we often ponder lines from a poet. Right, we'll sit and do that together for hours. Um, mm -hmm. And so the same thing is possible with number. It seems to me, especially in a world where, um, you know, the power of AI and other, other things that can calculate for us, right, that math as, as sort of empowering somebody to do high level calculations, there's really less of a necessity for that, right? And, that, and in a way that frees us up um, mm -hmm. to have a, a better math education that really is, you know, a response to, feeding the soul in that, in that way that both of you described it. I love that. One of the things that Pope Benedict XVI talked about uh, is the, the tyranny of relativism. Right? And this seems to be something that most of our students, right, even students who are coming from a religious background, if you push them hard enough, right, this sort of relativism has seeped into their thinking. Um, so and, and we see some of the consequences this has led to. What are the ways in which the, the classical and liberal education tradition respond to um, and, and gives, gives students a foundation on which to build um, a, a coherent view of the world? This is one of the starting points with teachers when we, when we talk about this, you know, Pope Benedict's quote. And the, what is he saying there? He's saying that if there is no truth, only power prevails. Right. Either there is truth or it is the will to power. Um, so even in the baby steps, as we are teaching children that something is true, like we said, math facts, or um, we begin to know by our senses, through our senses, right? Those things are the pathway to eventually, as an older child recognizes that there are some things that are universal. There are things in the moral law that are universal. Um, that that desire for justice that we see in, in many of the ideologies that are um, that are around us now, there is there is a desire for justice. But what is justice? It's to give the other his due. So I think that the the entire classical liberal arts tradition is ordered toward this in every way. Like, how do we find? How do we go back? Look at both the, the small details and the big picture about who we are and what is common to all of us. So it's ultimately it's unifying, but it's true that 
The left has had its long march through the institutions. And we need to start with the youngest hearts and minds to show that there is there is goodness and there is truth and there's beauty. Piece of what we're doing with cultivating wisdom and virtue is for the human to be able to love their neighbor. And so right now the separation among cultures is strong, right? With tribalism happening across our nation. Um, and I believe that this way of cultivating a human being to order their loves, um, to think of another, to care for themselves in that, right? Christ says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, that's possible with this. When when you're mentored by a person who says, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to something when you can't hold yourself, I'm gonna be your external chest. Um, as you are building up, as this builds up your chest and yourself so that you can then self-govern, right? And and become liberal, liberated to go out and continue this in your home, right? Everybody, we each have our own kingdom that we will rule and reign over. And the first kingdom is in our family. Um, and then we have some kind of role that we play within our community, our neighborhood, our churches, and those places need us to come and speak truth, goodness, and bring the beauty in for one another to continue this. I also think humility, sorry, I just wanted to add that I think there's a humility brought in. You know, the recognize the recognition that as soldier Nietzsche said, right, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we call ourselves to? What If this is ordered toward human flourishing, and human flourishing is ultimately sanctity, there's yeah. a humility and docility that's that's built in, that's foundational to every to way, the way we approach knowing, to the way we approach one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, w- I wanted to pick up on that. I mean, what, what role do you think classical and liberal education hmm. plays in evangelization? I mean, we are we're seeing, you know, the, the increase in growth in the the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that Bishop Barron talks about, that, you know, the, the faith is just not compelling. It doesn't seem reasonable. It doesn't seem uh, to fulfill, a, you know, a need, a perceived need. Um, so is there something about this educational movement that is helping to cultivate the ground for um, to, to evangelize uh, for, for Christians? Is there any relation there? There's no, there's no guarantee in this um, education, right? So I, I can, I can educate a child um, where I have laid before them a feast on the true, the good, and the beautiful through excellent story, myth, fable, as well as number, and we have feasted together. And at the same time, they are. Um, individuals. Um, so I'm called while I am their teacher to love them. Um, and and I'm also limited. And I have to remember that and, and be humble to know that I don't, it's not up to me. It's not my place. There is a holy of holies in each one of us where the temple resides in each of us. Um, and so I want to nourish that in them. That That's my role as teacher. Beautifully said, Andrea. I think we can think of ourselves as tilling the good soil so that as they receive each small truth, it ultimately builds for them to see the truth about themselves. You know, um, I think it was the words of the Second Vatican Council. It's only in the mystery of the word made flesh that the mystery of man becomes truly clear. Can't fully understand ourselves mm-hmm. without life in Christ. And um I think in in these smaller truths that we're seeing them, it built it does build to a larger truth and speaks to the just the deepest longings of the human heart, which are ultimately spiritual. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the good. Um, and here I'll, I'll start with a challenge to this idea that you know classical liberal education um, is about the good. Uh, I'll talk about. Uh, someone we teach here in the Honors College in our senior year class on education. I'm sure you're both familiar with John Henry Newman uh, in his book on the idea of a university. And I know we're talking primarily about a, a K through 12 renewal here, but he makes this interesting distinction on the idea of a university. 
uh, when he talks about liberal education, Discourse 5, and he says, you know, the ends of a liberal education don't necessarily make saints, right? They don't, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily make good people. So he goes through all these virtues and these sort of effects on the soul that a liberal education has, equitableness, fairness in argument, precision. Um, and he says all of these things make the gentleman, or today we might say, right, the lady or the gentleman, um, the, the scholar, um, mm -hmm. the moderate scholar, but they could be a scoundrel. Right. Um, it doesn't make the saint. Um, right. And I, th I think he qualifies this a little bit later on. But um, so, you know, with, with that in mind, I know one of Circe's um, kind of taglines is uh, wisdom and virtue. What, what is it? Uh, uniting wisdom and virtue or restoring. Cultivation. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So so what is uh, liberal education, classical education? What does that have to do with uh, the moral virtues, with with the good? Um, why not just sort of give them precepts of, you know, good old fashioned religion um, and, and, you know, here are the commandments, thou shalt, thou shalt not. What does this broader, deeper tradition have to do with um, molding the, the moral virtues and, and the good in our students? You've opened a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I know, too much. Oh, We're going to get okay. to two or three probably. <laughs> Let's see. Um, so one of the places my mind goes to with your question is... Um, you said, why not give them just rules, basically precepts? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. So a, a rule um, is often something that's used for a slave. And that's not what we're about here. Um, uh, uh, somebody, the, the personality of the human who's following rules for rules' sake is not one who can think or reason or decide. And so we're wanting to cultivate those human faculties of a free person, a liberal education, a liberal mind. Um, so in order to do that, we need to help them cultivate those capacities. We have to trust that um, it's not just us at work in the classroom while we're teaching. We are not there alone. Mm -hmm. And so I, every lesson I teach, particularly when I'm teaching rhetoric, I recognize that I could be teaching my enemies mm -hmm. at all times. And so I, I pray before, during, after my lessons to recognize that I need the Holy Spirit to teach, to illuminate the soul. I'm not alone. Beautiful. Beautiful. And as, as Andrea said, so you opened up so many avenues. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Keep going, Beth. That question, right? But um, a few maybe disjointed pieces. You know, I, I immediately think of St. Thomas. You know, St. Thomas says that the... Um, the will never operates without the intellect. We know so that we know how to live, not just so that we know how to earn a living, right? So um, I'm also thinking of uh, Ryan Topping. Um, if you know him, he's got a number of really good books. I think it's his book on Augustine in which he says, the classical tradition honors the sage, the Catholic tradition, the Christian tradition honors the saint. So it's more than just knowing that there's intellectual virtue and there's moral virtue. We hope that when we encounter what is true and good and beautiful and our tastes are cultivated to love what is true and good and beautiful, that can't help but affect how we live and what we love, you know. And then, of course, now I'm going to St. Augustine, you know, um, in terms of properly ordered loves. So there's a piece that comes from just the intellect to the will and to properly ordered loves, which is the goal of this, this kind of education. Um, at ICLE, we like to say classical speaks to the philosophical origins of the tradition, not the theological necessarily, right? Catholic liberal education speaks to its end, which is freedom in Christ, the only authentic freedom. And I think so much of modernity rests on the giant inversion of what true freedom actually is. It's not licensed to do whatever we want. It's the freedom to see the truth of things so that we can order our lives and our loves to that truth. Thank you so much. All right, last, yeah, we could talk, yeah. Uh, all mm -hmm. right, we'll, we'll hit the last transcendental and then uh, and talk about your guys' programs a little bit and um, some other things. So beauty, um, I mean, we hit on this a little bit in some of your earlier answers, but, uh, you know, I'm reminded here of the famous Nobel Prize speech by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
you know, a Russian dissident uh, in the gulags, came to America, poet, and he starts off one of the sections of his speech with a Dostoevsky quote, uh, beauty will save the world. And he starts off with this quote, beauty will save the world. And then he starts to ask some questions, right? Like, this seems ridiculous. Beauty, maybe it, it edifies, it, it inspires, but this idea that beauty would save the world um, it seems it seems sort of absurd to us. So um, maybe we can explore this a little bit. You know, I mean, I think beauty for so many uh, in, the, in the modern world, we're so influenced by um, David Hume's kind of view on beauty, which is beauty is, it's, it's like taste, right? It's... Um, it's it's personal preference. I like chocolate. You like vanilla. I like Mozart. You like uh, Aerosmith. Um, so so what's this idea of the beautiful in the classical tradition? How is it related to the other two? How does it feed our souls? Again, tons of questions. But maybe just talk a little bit about uh, your 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 big thoughts on the beautiful. Go ahead, Andrea. I'll let you go first this time. <laughs> oh, um... I'm stalling, Andrea. <laughs> you're stalling. Okay. Specifically so was, how it works in, in your edge. Yeah. In yes, what you're doing. Yeah. So. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll lead off with Cersei has had entire conferences on that alone as we've contemplated the beautiful because how do you, how do you capture it? Um, and so I can, I can tell you what's not beautiful and I can tell you what that doesn't do. And I am still looking and I'm wanting to gaze upon the beautiful. The beautiful will often cause um, the the physical body to to step back, like you'll take the gasp, right? And it's not just a it's not always a um, physical beauty. There's a beauty in a response of how you see people respond to one another, hmm. um, right? There's that that kind touch and the gentle response that is beautiful. Um, and, and then there's a, a need once that body notices it, the body often wants to do likewise, hmm. reproduce that. Um, and so the, I think the beautiful calls us to that. Yes. And just to build on what Andrea said, it reminds me of sympathetic strings. If you know that phenomenon, mm -hmm. you know, it's just our souls respond to beauty in a way that it doesn't have to be processed through our intellect. So in an age when truth is so broken and so tortured, beauty seems to be the thing that can unite us. People, you know, people respond to something beautiful in nature or, or a beautiful gesture. Mm -hmm. It just responds to the deepest part of us, but it also calls us to something more. We know there's something beyond it. It's not, it's beautiful in and of itself, but it speaks to something beyond, I think. And so, um, this idea that beauty will save the world, I think Dostoevsky's onto something there. <laughs> because you can see that this is, it's a unifying transcendental. Yeah. It's deeply unifying. And I find a lot of hope in that. Mm -hmm. Andrew, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned in your answer that I know I think is key for Cersei, I'd imagine ICLE too, but uh, you mentioned wanting to reproduce, wanting to reproduce something. Uh, which reminds me of this classical focus on imitation, mimesis, or I don't know how to pronounce the ancient Greek, but I know this is this is really important for the Circe Institute. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about the role that imitation plays in classical pedagogy? Um, and yeah. Yeah, so to understand um, the nature of a human being, particularly we look at children, as that children imitate what they see. Right. So we become what we behold. Mm. And so oftentimes uh, children go into similar fields as their parents, right? like going, you know, go yeah. back before there was the, the plethora of choices in every grocery store. Um, you, you, you became what was near you and what you saw um, and got to know the rhythms of. And so uh, likewise, while we're teaching, knowing that that's inherent in the nature of a human being, um, we lay before our students um, whatever the next skill is that we want them to also be able to do. And so, and we model it for them. So that, and then we give them a gentle step before asked, they are asked to do likewise. Um, and if we make the gap too big, right, they're going to fall in the hole. And if we make the gap uh, not large enough, they're not, they're not challenged. They're not, there's not something for them to rise to the occasion of, right? And so there's that spot where the teacher's dancing 
to with them to figure out that space for them. And I think by the same token, you know, we're we're immersing them in beautiful language, poetry, literature, um, virtuous characters, because we're we are imitators by nature, as Andrea said. And that's logical because we're made in an image. Like mm -hmm. the goal of our life is the imitation of Christ. And yeah. so it's natural that we would learn in this way, but consider how this has been completely rejected in modern education. Modern education prizes, they, they make fun of rote memorization. And we can go into a whole other topic of what's valid memorization, what's a valid use of memory and what is rote yeah. memorization. But um, the completely rejection of imitation um, because we crave creativity. We, we value the original thought. Well, your six-year-old can tell a story, but his, his or her imagination is first being formed by something. Right. So we have to understand the order of these things that we're imitating what mm. is excellent before we can add, you know, think of a, um, a classically trained piano player. A, a jazz musician probably is pretty strong in terms of the foundational things. You can't be creative unless you have the foundation first. And if I could pull the Jesus card for a moment on that one. Right. Jesus often said, I do what I see my father doing. I do what my father says. And so. He sent us out to go and do likewise, to be like him. And so that's um, that's our goal. That's our hope and our prayer. I just taught my students Aristotle's Poetics this semester. Um, you know, and, and, and in different works by Aristotle, he often starts off with uh, some statement about what uniquely um, contributes to our humanity, right? And so in the metaphysics, man by nature desires to know. Mm -hmm. In the politics, man is that thing that has speech. Uh, but at the beginning of the poets, right, man is different from the other animals in um, being a, a great imitator, right? Uh, in taking pleasure in imitations, in imitating in that first way. And it just seems to me uh, that anytime we reject one of those things, forming and cultivating those things that Aristotle says is uniquely human about us, uh, we do so at our own peril. Um, so it's it's so great to see the, the recovery of, of imitation, right? It's, yeah, our democratic souls. I mean, I teach Tocqueville too, but I mean, it's just this illusion of always wanting to, right, sort of create ex nihilo, to not accept anything mm -hmm. as given. Um, and we sort of pride ourselves on that. And ultimately it leads to a sort of paralysis and sort of terror where we can't produce anything uh, or or anything of value. That's great. Um, so as we're um, kind of moving along in time, I, I wanted to allow each of you to talk about your programs and the way in which they try to uh, cultivate this tradition. And so maybe we'll start with the Cersei Institute. Tell us a little bit about the apprenticeship program. And it's a, it's a three year long program. How does it uh, try to form future teachers um, in this tradition? Thanks. Uh, the, uh, it's a cohort based programs where we have head mentors almost across the country um, uh, Colorado to the East Coast um, and meet with about 12 teachers at a time with one head mentor and we come together twice a year in person for approximately a week um, in that time each teacher teaches in front of one another and learns how to assess themselves as well as be assessed by their mentor um, and then uh, learns how to assess other teachers, right? To to look for parts and pieces of the mimetic sequence in particular. Um, all the while, we are reading great books, um, the three epics, uh, Aeneid, Odyssey, and Iliad. We're reading Shakespeare, three plays, and we're reading three dialogues with Plato throughout the year, those three years. And we're reading Norms and Nobility, as well as Standing by Words with Wendell Berry and Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And so we're learning a lot of grammar in that regard um, and, and how to read well. Yeah. And we uh, write all of the lost tools of writing levels, all three levels. And so yeah. our teachers themselves are practicing the skills of rhetoric um, and gaining that. Um, so. And then they get the chance to mentor, as Beth mentioned. And when you're a second or a third year mentor, uh, apprentice in the program, you're called a journeyman, and you're mm -hmm. mentoring a first year. 
um, apprentice. So, uh, you know, there's the head mentor, then the mentor and yourself within the program. We want people to reproduce and go yeah. out there and do likewise um, and continue. And that's exactly what Beth has done. Can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Lost Tools of Writing and, and maybe how that differs from modern approaches to ret comp, mm. uh, you know, a, t a typical oh. composition class? What is it? I know you guys pride yourself on the, on that curriculum. So yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's not a like a literary um, analysis. It's not about composition per se in that, you know, traditional sense. It's uh, developing the ability to perceive, um, but also to speak to your neighbor that disagrees. And so by the third level of the of writing, we aim at speaking to, it's an address at that point. So we're speaking to somebody who we, we, we've chosen somebody who disagrees with us to see if we can um, winsomely win them over. So, um, yeah, that's uh, a place to play. So, like, when we start teaching Lost Tools to seventh graders, um, we, we play in the playground of their literature or their history or their science or their math books and not in the things that they want to think about and convince their school of or their parents of, you know, extend my curfew or give me a cell phone or, right, like, I want a horse. Um, those are not the things that we have them write on. We have them write in these other areas so that we remove the personalness and they can learn to the skill separate from the emotion. So in the beginning, that's where we start. So Beth, tell us, I know your, your program is, is different. You have these, these five main sections uh, on these yes. different topics. So tell us a little bit about yes. ICLEs. Yeah. So first I will say just big endorsement for the Cersei apprenticeship. I, it was a wonderful experience for me um, on many levels. Um, at ICLE, Pretty much everything we do is, you know, stems from the idea that teaching is very relational and we want to restore the dignity of teaching and to build up teachers in their, in the, to master their craft. You know, St. John Paul II talked about, you know, the supreme art of, of teaching, of helping forming, forming, educate, forming people. So um, we saw that there was a real gap because um, most of modern education, uh, a lot of schools will require teachers who are trained for state licensure, but state licensure is ordered and based in a, in a philosophy of education that really is different from a, the Catholic classical liberal arts tradition. So we did not expect to come up with a credential program, but we, we basically built it to fill the gap because a lot of dioceses and schools are looking for teachers who know what they're doing. And we can completely understand that impulse. Those of us who have taught know that it's very hard to just step into the, a classroom with no, without a mentor, without skills. So our program is an 18 month program that uh, allows someone who hasn't taught before, someone um, who has taught some but wants to go deeper uh, to take this program alongside they're actually teaching in the classroom. Um, so it's 18 months, it's 135 um, hours, you know, sort of very intensive. Um, there's two models of it, but there's basically part of it is to get, so there's three weeks together during the year and then weekly online. So it's divided into essentially five courses. Um, the sort of pedagogy, essentially, restoring, leading from wisdom to wonder. Um, a classroom management, which we call the virtuous classroom, as a sense of to look at something not in terms of managing children, but yeah. cultivating virtue in them, in the community that is the classroom and the school. The trivium, uh, the quadrivium, and then there's a foundations course that comes at the end. It seems like you want those foundations at the beginning, but this is boot camp, so they can jump into the classroom. And there's the entire program marries theory and practice all the way. The, the philosophy, the ideas of what we were talking about before, why do we imitate? And how does that look in second grade or 10th grade? And what's the appropriate use of that? Foundations backs out a little and looks at the history and philosophy um, of the Catholic intellectual tradition, um, deeper readings. And then there's a philosophy of education paper that caps that off. Thank you. Um, maybe uh, as we're winding down in terms of time, I want to ask about um, uh, 
what what you're seeing and and what the impact of all of this might be. I, I hate modern education lingo. It always talks about outcomes and SLOs, student learning outcomes, and I find it to be sort of soulless bad assessment. But you know, scripture tells us we should be able to give a cause for our hope, and ultimately, you know, ultimately that's Christ. Um, and but this educational movement, which is tied to to Christ, but to to something um, to, to this deeper tradition. I mean. What do you see coming out of it? What do you sort of hope in, to see in this world, you know, in the in the next uh, the next generation? What what do you think the impact will be? Or, or, I mean, make it at the smaller level. What have been some of the impacts you've seen already? Some of the, the highlights or the stories you've seen that have given you a cause for hope in what you're doing. Uh, so feel free to take that wherever you'd like. <laughs> you want to go first, Beth? Um, yes, I can say that we see great cause for hope because we see over and over and over teachers being renewed in their vocations to see the bigger picture and really just to be on fire themselves once again for learning and for to master their craft. And the beautiful thing is that, I mean, as you can imagine, a teacher um, who is filled with wonder and awe and excitement it, that's infectious, right? And a teacher has exponential reach on the children he or she serves. And so we just see this spreading because, especially I can say as a parent, once you've seen what your the difference in your children who are learning in this way, the joy in learning, you have to have it. You really can't go back to anything else. You can't go back to the factory model of education because that's this is what we're made for, just to know, <laughs> as Aristotle knew. I'll add a story. I'll capture it that way. I have a, an apprentice right now. Um, she came in, she's in her second year and came in having not been in the classroom before. It was her first year teaching. Her children have all grown, left the, the nest, and she's walked into a private school, Christian school, to teach for the first time, um, but doesn't know how to do it. So she puts herself in the apprenticeship at the same time as she puts herself in the school. And she does the choosing. The school didn't, you know, she just knew she wanted more. She wanted to know what she was doing when she walked in. And right, your first year of teaching, it's worse than a fire hose, um, right? So <laughs> any of us here, she's in her second year now, and she sends me a note, uh, a photo of her, of a classroom note that one of her students gave her that says something to the effect of, I just want to be like you. Mm -hmm. Right? And she said, so maybe I'm doing something right, Andrea? Question mark. Like, oh, sweet friend, <laughs> right? So the, she came in, you know, all only knowing her modern education. And so what do we do? We reproduce what we know. She needed to learn something else. And so throughout the, her first school year, she rearranged her desk. She changed the, the beautiful space that she was meeting in as she learned of what was possible. And then she's seen slowly as change in her students' behavior, attentiveness, um, and desire to be present has shifted. So that's what I see as possible. I also, I hear people who come to us asking, can you, you can, you can teach a teacher how to teach? I was like, yes, we can teach a teacher how to teach. Um, it, there's a skill that can be taught. And so, uh, and it's not, it doesn't have to be scary. Um, I can't teach you all the content. You need to know some content, mm -hmm. right? I'll teach you the skills. And so that's a, a place that we can marry. You've, you've described uh, so many wonderful things, both in terms of the, the aims and the goals of a classical education and, and the way in which it goes about, uh, the means that it uses to, to form souls. But um, we know that our students today, even the ones coming from the the best families, um, you know, that with the best backgrounds, that there are so many influences in their lives that are um, kind of pushing against all of this, uh, from you know the attention spans of the of the ten second video clips on TikTok. My wife and I were talking about this last night, the other day. We just said, even we, right, like who value all of these things? Like, yeah. you go, well, instead of watching a movie on Netflix, you would do a half an hour of just ten second clips, and you go, what on earth, right? People who value all of this, right? Um, so there's that. There's there's so many of these other things that we see. Um, even if you, if students are being homeschooled or going to these to these classical schools. So, what are some of the ways that um, this movement, the challenges it faces, um, and and what are the ways in which we have to kind of address those challenges to um, this kind of education? 
I'd say there's no denying there. Sorry, Andrew, you want to go ahead? Yeah, no, go ahead. There's no denying all of those pressures on these children. Um, and also those, as Andrea was describing her own experience, being trained to get that straight A and never walking out again. So it rattles those eighth grade girls with straight A's, right? <laughs> because mm -hmm. the formula doesn't work. Suddenly they're being asked to go deeper and to think on their own, not just have a study guide that they recognize. And it's a little unsettling um, at the beginning. The little kids, that's not true. They take to it like ducks to water immediately. Like it's just, you know, just meshes with who they are at the moment. But in our experience, it doesn't take that long. You know, especially you inject story. Like we learn by story, our Lord taught by parable. When you're beginning to ask the deeper questions and asking them to think, it's fun to think. And these are big universal questions that speak to every human heart. So it takes a little bit of jockeying at the beginning, but in our experience, in my experience in the classroom, it didn't take that long. And I will say one other beautiful thing. I'm thinking of, you know, the sixth grade boy class clown who doesn't think of himself as a scholar. But once he's engaged, once it means something that these questions we're asking in the classroom, he cared and he dialed in and he became an excellent student. Not only was he good at public speaking, he actually learned how to write these thoughts down. So when there's a desire to know, the skills come along with it. Modern education has taught skills and facts without any big any larger meaning. And who can blame anybody for disengaging from that? My mind has gone to lots of different places because of what you just shared. I don't remember the original question. The challenge is that uh, the cultural challenges to this education and how we respond and try to push back. Yeah. Um, I was like, I think the one of the first words you said um, was to acknowledge it, right? To 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 not deny it, um, and to recognize it, and that that is the start. And then not to feed it, to actually feed, right? So if we're going to cultivate wisdom and virtue in our students and in ourselves, because I appreciate you, Joe, saying, hey, even us people, adults who want the true, the good, and the beautiful, will find ourselves not cultivating that, instead planting seeds elsewhere in a different soil, right? So how do we cultivate this wisdom and virtue with the true, the good, and the beautiful so we continue to feed it and offer it? Um, and to do so without shame. So one of the key things we do in our, our classroom is receive what it is that our students bring us. Every word that they speak is a gift and to receive that gift right where they are um, because they may not have perceived the truth, the good or the beautiful yet in a way that they can express it to you. And so we need to be patient and meet them where they are and, and be joyful for whatever little flower they hand us. Just want to add one thing. You know, I know a number of teachers who have injected just the practice of silence into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And at first, it's so uncomfortable to have, let's say, five minutes of just silence at the beginning of the year. But by a few months in, those children are craving it. And when you begin to coach them in ways to find comfort in that space that is silent to listen to the still small voice of course you know mm -hmm. we all need that and they respond to it over time it takes some coaching it takes some experience but by the end they're craving it it's like the lessons right when we're teaching them lessons that are skills and we're not teaching them how to give me back the answers for my test when I first was doing that in the classroom with older students, like you mentioned about the young ones are ready. But when you step into a classroom with seventh grades on up and they've been taught how to regurgitate the answers for their teacher, that's what they've been taught. They haven't been taught how to learn. They've been taught how to regurgitate. Um, when I'm expecting them to learn and engage, they were completely uncomfortable, told their parents that I'm not teaching them anything because um, they didn't know what to do. And so I had to build a relationship of trust with them to let them know there's love here. And mm -hmm. I'm not trying to set them up for failure because this does look like a failure to them because it, it wasn't familiar. So that's part of the change of changing the culture has to happen. And so we have to hold to what we know to be good for them. 
even when it's not what they want. Their mouth isn't going to proclaim it in the beginning or ask for it. But because we hold to the true for them, they can come along. And as you shared with silence, that's one beautiful example of a gift to give them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, so much of what you said here touches on this hope that I have um, in, in this movement. Uh, in, I mean, hope, hope for the church, hope for the, the, the political regime in the United States, the culture. Um, and, and, and it's not because this is, you know, a sort of arrow in the culture war, right, that we're, we're going to win something. But, but truly, I mean, we, we live in this world now with intense anger. And we, mm -hmm. we talk about it all the time. And we think that, well, you know, there's, we just need to be more civil. And we, we um, but, you know, Andrea, one of the things you said, sort of receiving uh, the words as a gift, you know, of the student who doesn't fully understand something. Um, and, you know, as I, I taught Aristotle's rhetoric this semester uh, as well, and, you know, one of the things he says that causes anger is that uh, is he calls it a slight, right? We, we, we get angry because we're slighted. And what is just so prevalent in our culture now is, and, and a slight is to hold what someone else values as nothing, right? Mm. What they value, whatever it is to hold it as nothing. And that's really, you know, if you talk about the particular issues, it's not, I, I think so often it's not that you believe this and you believe this, it's that I look at what you believe and I say it's nothing. And, and that's so contrary to the, the Aristotelian and, and classical liberal education tradition. You know, Aristotle tells us that most of us hit on some part of the truth at some time. And it seems that we are utterly unable to do that, right, with those we disagree with, to, to accept what they're saying, to say, what, what is the partial truth that we can work with there, right? And, and when we're able to, to be... Um, to receive these words as gifts, right? To um, to actually listen, you know, the Benedictine tradition here at Belmont Abbey College, the rule of Saint Benedict, right? Uh, I'm sure some of you you know this, but um, the first word is listen, right? And and um, really, this this tradition um, teaches us to listen charitably. I think better than than anything else, uh, and that gives me so much hope. But um, I think we're about running out of time. Um, so as we conclude. Uh, thank you to our audience for joining us. Thank you, Andrea and Elizabeth, for taking the time to join us for this episode and this wonderful conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends that Conversatio is available on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Until next time, God bless. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you.